Do you know that um, it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God? That's, that's interesting, isn't it? There's a, there's a kind of community um, where we get a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls, lots of scripture um, is, is found there that was excavated by archaeologists in the 20th century. The Qumran community, if you've heard of that, the Book of Esther is the only bit of scripture that wasn't found in that community. They didn't think that highly of it. And probably, I want you, when you read the Book of Esther, think Shakespeare comedy. Think about those kind of Shakespeare comic reversals. Think about those kind of where, where a baddie gets his comeuppance, like the Merchant of Venice or something like that. And I think that in some ways, the Book of Esther is a little bit of a comic tale. It's a bit of, of a tale of kind of reversals that actually lead to God's people being vindicated and a happy ever after ending, apart from the baddies who are really bad and, and get their comeuppance. But at the heart of it, there is a woman called Esther. My daughter's called Esther. It's a wonderful name. It's actually, a, even the name itself is taken from the Persian. It's not a Hebrew name. It's, it's a loan word from, um, yeah, from, from a, a, a Persian goddess, really. So it's, it's, it's what an interesting book. And in many ways as well, it's kind of the Me Too movement would have a field day with the Book of Esther, wouldn't they? It's kind of, it's really shocking about the way that women are treated in that book. And in, in some ways it's about power and, and, um, and, 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 and sex. There's an awful lot of eating and drinking in it as well. A lot of banqueting goes on in the Book of Esther. So in some ways, you know, banqueting, so I don't know, maybe it leads us to think about weddings. But, um, at, at the end of the, the, the if I was going to summarise the story, it's the story of a, a woman who is chosen to be the consort of a king, to be like a royal bride, and in that position uses her influence to save her people from genocide. That's, that's a little summary of the story of the book of Esther. And if you're going to think about what does a day in the life of Esther look like, well, Quite a lot of the, a day in the life of Esther looked like her getting ready for her wedding. I might just read you a little verse from, if I can, oh, look at that. It just opens as if by magic. So, a little bit of a background. Um, basically, the king, Xerxes, had a bit of a tiff with his wife, Queen Bashti because she did not want to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunken men at a seven-day banquet when they're all you know, off their faces with alcohol. And she refused to come and, and show her beauty to the king's court at his command. And he, he, he kind of got in a bit of a, got a bit miffed about this and decided he would depose her as, as queen and, and find another one. So there was this kind of beauty contests throughout his vast empire to find a beautiful virgin and lots of them were selected and they were all kind of prepared before they could be shown to the king. And it says this in chapter 2 verse 12 of the book of Esther. Before a girl's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and women's unguents. Think about 12 months of intensive beauty treatment. Before you go to the king, you're going to look the very best you can. So when we think about the preparation that people like Olive have gone through for their wedding day, it pales into insignificance compared with that one year of intensive beauty treatment. Um, 
Why am I saying this? I suppose for me, as I think about weddings and brides and preparation and beauty treatments and looking good, I'm also led to a passage in the New Testament and I'm going to read it from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it goes on to talk about washing, uh, preparation. It, it, it has this picture of, of a bride that's being prepared. Um, and, and actually it's a picture of, of the church which Jesus thinks of, addresses, calls her bride. And part of the, the story of the church is about a church being prepared to be ready for the bridegroom. And the Bible finishes in Revelation 21 with a picture of the church. It, sees, it describes the church coming down from heaven dressed like a bride, without spot or blemish, made beautiful, made perfect, made ready for the consummation of history, which is the unity of Christ Jesus with his church. It's a huge picture. And when Paul talks about marriage, when Paul talks about weddings, he talks about husbands loving their wives. And, uh, and, and he, in fact, I'm going to read that as well. Excuse me. There's a little bit more there, which I, I just draw, draw out. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, Olive and, and Matt and Sam and Hannah probably don't know this yet, but marriage isn't a bed of roses. It isn't an infallible recipe for lifelong happiness. And many of, of the people here in, in the room may have come from families where marriage of your parents hasn't worked out, where there's been pain and hurt, and where, where you've seen firsthand some of the difficulties about marriage. And yet, we still want to pursue what marriage offers, don't we? We still want to pursue that ideal of a covenanted, lifelong, exclusive love relationship where we serve one another, where we help one another be the best version of one another that we could be, where we provide a context for family life and, and all, all that. And actually, I really believe in marriage. I've been married for 41 years, and in that time, there have been some seasons that have been hard, and there have been seasons that have been wonderful. But it's been uh, perhaps the, the most maturing, the most wonderful thing that God can do in my life is to help me be shaped in the context of an exclusive relationship, but in that place to learn about him. And if, if you're not married here, and even if, if you know, marriage doesn't seem to be a, a real possibility, I don't want you to feel diminished by that, of course, because actually all of this stuff that marriage is is pointing to the greater thing that you are incorporated in. You see, in... 
following Jesus and being part of the church, gender becomes a little bit um, shared in, in the sense that we have male and female images that we both embrace. We're all sons of God because as far as the Bible's concerned, sonship is a metaphor about our status. And we're all part of the bride of Christ because as far as the Bible's concerned, us belonging to, to Jesus means that collectively together, we are, heart, we are what he loves and has laid down his life for, is committed to, and is committed to making perfect. And, and the, the truth about following Jesus is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be. You're actually placed, whether you recognise it or not, within the church, the bride of Christ. And a big part of your following of Jesus and your discipleship will be worked out in finding out how, as part of the bride of Christ, you then love and honour him. And I suppose for me, I see myself both as someone who is called to help the church, and certainly the part of the church that I'm working with and in, to be the best it can be. I want Woodlands to be as radiant, as without spot and blemish as possible. It's got lots of spots and blemishes, but I'd like it to be radiant. And, and for Philip and Kate here at Metro, as, as we work together, actually, but, but they want Metro to be the very best version of the Bride of Christ, or a picture of it that they could possibly have. And so we'll spend quite a lot of time on the beauty treatment. Beauty treatment for the people of God, because we're called to be the Bride of Christ. And as I was saying, you know, we have not got anything better than marriage for family life, I don't think. I mean, call me old-fashioned, and I'm not wanting to take away from any of the, the beautiful ways in which people raise children in very different states. I've got a good friend who's, um, who I was talking to today who's a single person who really wants to adopt the two children she's long-term fostering. And fantastic, and she'll do a great job, and uh, etc. cetera. There, there are lots of ways in which we do family life. But I think that there is something particularly wonderful about the very best sort of family. And of course, it only works out some of the time. And other things work out some of the time. And the church is similar, isn't it? Sometimes the church doesn't work out that well, if you're part of it. Just like being part of a family doesn't work out that well. I don't know how many of you have watched the, the documentary about Hillsong Church that's been on BBC iPlayer, uh, Storyville, recently. And I watched that. It was an uncomfortable watch. At times, there were some fantastic things. There were stories about people having their lives really transformed, meeting Jesus through this very vibrant church. But there were also some, a darker side of church. And um, it was an uncomfortable watch at times. And sometimes the church looks great. And sometimes it is absolutely stunning and beautiful. But sometimes it looks abusive and dysfunctional, just like a marriage can look abusive and dysfunctional. And we haven't given up on marriage. We haven't given up on church. And Jesus hasn't given up on church because he wants the church to be the best representation for the community of the kingdom of God that it can possibly be. So we need, I believe, as followers of Jesus, to devote ourselves to looking good. And, and that's awkward, isn't it? Because one of the things that the world will spot very quickly 
is if the looking good of church is hype and superficiality, over-promising and under-delivering. It'll be very quickly easy to find out whether it's all gloss. Actually, the truth about Queen Esther in the story of Esther is, okay, she was very beautiful. She was chosen by the king. But the truth about her was she was so much more than the external. The truth about her was that she was a woman of courage, of wisdom, and of discretion. And at the right time, stepped up and put her life on the line for the sake of other people, where she could have preserved herself by denying her heritage as a Jewess and just trading on being the consort of the king. But she chose to identify with people who are under the threat of genocide in order to save them. And it took courage to do that. And, you know, sometimes church can look <laughs> glossy. You know, maybe, uh, you, you know, you go to a, a big celebration and, and actually the worship is really cool and, and, and creative and vibrant. And, uh, you know, maybe you, you go to a very different sort of church and there is something wonderful about the building and the pomp and ceremony of it. And maybe there are some very gifted orators in the church who can uh, kind of have a congregation eating out their hands and, and laughing with them and, and all that sort of stuff and some charismatic leadership. But at the end of the day, what is it that makes the church beautiful? What is the church that Jesus loves meant to look like? And honestly, it's about the quality of his loving and the quality of the serving that is inspired by that loving that really makes the church look beautiful. So, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. That's a title that John the Baptist took for himself. In, in, in John's Gospel, there's, there's a bit of, of competition going between two groups of disciples, John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, and, 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 and there's a bit of moaning. Oh, why, is he, why is this Jesus this baptizing people? And, um, and John says, he must increase, I must decrease. He says that the friend of the bridegroom is all about promoting the bridegroom. The best groomsman doesn't want to look the greatest on the wedding day. He wants the bridegroom to look the greatest. And um, honestly, if you're, if you're working in the church, if you're a pastor in the church, if you're even a part of the church and, and you're a friend of the bridegroom, you will want this community to look the best it can be. But you're not just a friend of the bridegroom, you're also the bride, part of the bride. You yourself are not the bride, by the way. Together, we're the bride. And so we might be part of the problem. It might be that my apathy, that my um, broken and sinful behaviour that my uh, inconsistency in my witness, that my disunity and division, my uh, unforgiveness, actually makes the bride of Christ a bit spotty <laughs> and needs some beauty treatment. So, what's the beauty treatment that we've got? Paul in Ephesians was talking about washing by the word. Uh, with water in the word. I think washing, you know, for me, my beauty treatment is first of all the power of forgiveness. The power of what it means to forgive people 
and to ask for forgiveness myself when I need it. Over, over these months, there have been some issues in, in my own life where I've, I've, I've had some struggles where I've needed to do a little bit of forgiving. And um, last week, um, on, on our day off, my wife suggested, let's have a bit of a, a time for consecration. And we took some time out to bring situations before God. We actually thought about people that we really needed to say sorry to God for the way we treated them or to forgive them for the way we felt they treated us. We actually put some of their photos up on computer screen and talked to them. And um, we, we did a little bit of like a spiritual spring clean around forgiveness. And do you know, we both felt so good after doing that. It felt so healthy to have done that, to have done that activity, to, to make our confession before God, to ask for his mercy and to release other people to his mercy too. It was a wonderful thing to do. And that makes me look and feel better. And I think and trust and believe it will have outworkings in the body of Christ. Also this week, there's, there's just someone where a bit of distance had come in our relationship, in the church. And we just took time to spend quality time together and to explore what could be divisive and how we can find some unity in that. We took nine hours together to do that. We were really honest. And it felt so good to do that. It felt like there's a bit of beauty treatment going on here because the blood of Jesus which cleanses us from all sin. The water that comes from the washing of the Holy Spirit, the truth that comes from the Word of God, helps us become more beautiful. And I want to just, just say to you, as members of the family of God, the Bride of Christ, make yourselves as beautiful as you can be. Not outwardly, though that helps, <laughs> but inwardly. You know, that, that's again, it's, you know, don't, yeah. Your true beauty should cover, not that outward at all, the inward stuff Paul says. Anyway, we won't go into that. I think you look great, by the way. What a good-looking church you are. And, and Philip and Kate, they're such great role models, aren't they? In there. <laughs> I can't believe that Philip's 64. I mean, he looks... <laughs> anyway, um, so what, what else helps the church look good? Well, loving God, loving one another, but also loving the world. Doesn't the church look good when it cares for the poor? Doesn't the church look good when it stands up for justice? Doesn't the church look, go look good when, when it includes the broken that no one else will include? Doesn't it look beautiful when it's like that? And it may not always look kind of flash. Um, but the world will look at that and say, that looks beautiful. And actually, we've got a great examplars in, in our recent church history, haven't we? You know, we know, many of us know the story of people like Jackie Pullinger, who um, was speaking New Wine this year, actually, and there she, as, just as that young woman, young music graduate, going to Hong Kong, going to Wall City, choosing to invest her life with people who were bound up with drug addiction, with the gangs, and laying down her life for them. And, and, and the work there with these vulnerable people attracting the rich, the famous, the prosperous to come and see what was happening with the poor because it looked beautiful to the outside world. And we all know about Mother Teresa's story and her, her kind of 
caring for the, for the dying on the streets of Calcutta and seeing in the, the people that she cared for an image of, of Jesus who made, who, who God had made us in his image and, 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 and in nurturing the dying, those that everyone else rejected, attracting the attention of the world and it looking beautiful. I, I, when I, I've got a book at home called Something Beautiful for God. It's the story of Mother Teresa. It's the story of the BBC crew who went to film her and where, where it was too dark to film. There's almost like a light and a radiance which enables them to get shots they shouldn't have got. But something about, about the lives. And, and those, those are kind of big, high-profile, internationally known stories. But we've got stories in our own city, in our own midst. Actually, when um, Philip and, uh, pioneered Love Running and there was just this, oh, how can we do something to raise money for of the vulnerable in, in, in the world. It looked good. People wanted to be part of it. People who weren't Christians wanted to be part of that movement because it looked attractive, didn't it? It looked lovely. And I, I think God has given us things to do. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it talks about linen, pure and white, which the saints are given to wear, which stands for the righteous acts of the saints. There are things that God's going to give us to do that are going to make us look beautiful. And there are people to include in all this that God loves. I was thinking about banquets and the banquets that are there in, in the story of Esther. You know, there's a, honestly, there's a serious amount of banqueting. Seven-day banquets, a 180-day banquet that the, the emperor throws right at the beginning of it. Oh, that's, a lot, that's, that's half a year's worth of banquet, isn't it? You know? Uh, that's all they did. That's in the banquet. When, when, when Queen Esther invites uh, King Xerxes to, to get her request, she invites him for a banquet. There's a lot of banqueting going on. There's a lot of banqueting in the New Testament. And, and Jesus tells two parables about people, what's, people invited to a wedding banquet and they don't come. And so he, he, the, 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 the one who throws the feast says, go out into the highways and bison, make them come in, make the broken ones come in. You know, there's, there's a lot of rich, powerful, prosperous people. There's a lot of religious people. And the invitation is for all of us. But God wants people at his banqueting table. And as far as he's concerned, if you want to come, you're welcome. And no matter how broken and scruffy you are, you come in. He's going to give you clean clothes to wear. He's going to make you beautiful. But if you, no one's disqualified from showing up and being part of the bride, you know? You're not picked like Queen Esther was picked as being the most beautiful virgin in the empire that went all the way from, I don't know, Kush to India or whatever those, those places are. It was huge, that empire. Jesus says, the last and the least are welcome to become part of my bride. And because I am the perfect bridegroom and I know what you need, I'm going to make you beautiful. I'm going to make you the best version of you that can be. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to wash you. And as a church family, we're a healing community where broken people can come in and be made whole. You're part of that story. I'm so grateful to be in partnership with you. I'm so glad for what you represent. And I want to pray for you as I finish. Father God, I want to thank you so much for the men and women who are part of Metro, who have taken that call to be the best versions of themselves that they can be, to be called to follow Jesus and to in, in following Jesus, be part of his bride. Thank you for the call to love one another. Thank you for the, for the hubs where people 
have fun and disciple one another and, and hang out and welcome strangers. Thank you for the heart for our city that wants to see Bristol transformed to be a place where the poor and needy hear good news. Thank you for the inclusion that this church is one where people from different backgrounds, different races, different educations can be made welcome. I want to pray, Lord God, that you, Lord Jesus Christ, would purify this church to make her absolutely radiant and everyone in it. And I pray for the help and power of your Holy Spirit to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen.